One other announcement we didn't make Ron aware of. Uh, there's a little frame over here on the uh, portable pulpit you can see. And that is a frame for the new baby, uh, for a picture of the new baby uh, to go into once those who desire to do so have signed that frame. And they're going to put the baby's picture in there and then uh, frame that. And uh, it will be a reminder of uh, not only their newest member of the family, but the family of God at White Oak here uh, as well. So uh, please, uh, please uh, do that. Uh, also, that July 20th date uh, is an important date. That's a Sunday, and you may think, well, is the truck going to be here on Sunday or the man to pick it up? Well, it'll be that week, but if you don't bring it, uh, the can back on the 20th, you don't know when he's coming that week, you see, and so you may miss him. So that's why we would like to have those coin cans that are still out back by the 20th. There's a possibility, if you forget, that Wednesday night might work if he doesn't come till Thursday, but I don't think we know the day, so therefore... Uh, please get those, if you can, back in on July the uh, 20th. Uh, that uh, is the week of July 20th that he is coming. So we appreciate your cooperation in that. It's good to see everyone this evening. Glad that you are here for our continued study of the psalm that exalts the Word of God. Exalting the Word of God is, I think, the best description that we could give to the 119th psalm. Because, as we have said throughout this series, in every line there is uh, an expression of exaltation for the Word of God. And yet, done so beautifully by inspiration without vain repetition at all. Just as we would anticipate and expect from the book that has been inspired by the God of heaven through the Holy Spirit, the member of the Godhead. And tonight, after some brief uh, break, because of our fifth Sunday worship and song and other things, we are ready for the uh, 20th paragraph of this psalm. And remember that it is an acrostic psalm. That is, it uh, is a psalm that has 20, uh, four, uh, 22 paragraphs, uh, each representing a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each paragraph has eight verses in it, and in those 22 paragraph, paragraphs with eight verses each, each verse within that paragraph begins with that letter uh, of the paragraph. For example, tonight we're looking at R-E-S-H, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, uh, not even a Hebrew student for that matter, and so I don't know if that's resh or resh or or how the Hebrews would pronounce, how that would be pronounced in Hebrews, but it's equivalent to our letter R in our alphabet. And this particular paragraph begins with uh, verse 153, and the eight verses, of course, run through verse 160. It has been said in this series that this is a psalm that has been attributed to uh, David, and uh, it is a psalm that repeatedly depicts... Uh, uh, difficulties and persecutions into which the writer had come and uh, an appeal to God and an expression of confidence in God to help him in that time of persecution or in those times of affliction. And certainly we know, as we've said, that if David is indeed the author of this psalm, there were many times in his life when he was confronted uh, with trials and persecutions and some consequences of his own uh, sin. 
And yet David, a man after God's own heart, even though he did sin, was quick to admit that sin when confronted with it and to say, not if I have sinned, but I have sinned. And thus he was indeed a very contrite spirit and a servant of Almighty God, and one who had tremendous confidence in the revealed will of God for his life. In this particular paragraph, he begins with appeal and appeal to God to, notice verse 153, consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Again, we do not know what the affliction is to which the psalmist refers, but he wants consideration from the God of heaven. He wants God to consider his plight. He wants him to be aware of it. He wants him to remember, if you will. In fact, in these uh, first few expressions, there's a call to consider, or we might say to uh, remember. And then in verse uh, 154, redeem, and also the latter part of verse 154, revive. And so the appeal is threefold. Remember me, remember my affliction, Redeem me and revive me, verse 154, according to your word. But back to verse 153, notice the connection that he makes between the appeal that he makes in prayer to God the Father and his keeping of the law of God. It's a connection that we must not lose sight of, and yet it is a connection that tragically a great many people in our world tonight have lost sight of it. That is, the connection between the ability to go to God in prayer with the full confidence that God will hear and answer that prayer and living in such a way as to have your prayer heard by the Father. Remember the writer of old said, He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. And so here David says, Consider my affliction and deliver me upon what basis? For I do not forget your law. David is expressing to God the fact that he is a keeper of the law of God. Of course, the Mosaic covenant under which he uh, served and to which he was amenable and accountable. But he reminds the father as if the father needed reminded that I am your servant who is respectful of your word, respectful of your law. I strive to keep your law. Therefore, please consider my affliction and deliver me. The point being, who is it that can expect deliverance from God? Who is it that can call upon God with that full confidence that God will answer? Not necessarily in the way that the petitioner thinks the answer should come, nor necessarily at the specific time at which the petitioner thinks that answer should come, but with the full confidence that God, having the whole picture and seeing everything and knowing what is best, will indeed answer in accordance with what is best for us. Who is it that can approach the God of heaven with that confidence? It is only the one who has not forgotten his law. And of course, for us, that law today is the new covenant. John, in his writings, the Apostle John, makes it abundantly clear that if we ask according to his will and that if we are living our lives in accordance with his will, we can petition the Father with the kind of confidence that David expresses here. And while we live under a different covenant than the one under which David lived, the principle permeates every covenant, that principle being those who can petition the Father with a confidence that their prayer will be heard and answered are those whose lives are in harmony with the will of God.
whose lives are perfect and sinless? Absolutely not. That's not a possibility. But those whose lives are in harmony with the will of God. Those who are rebelling against the will of God cannot have that assurance. Prayer is a precious privilege belonging to those who are the followers of God, and in our case, the followers of Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. If you ever needed a lawyer, David did, as 154, verse 154 expresses in effect, that's the tenor of this particular term, plead my cause, plead my cause. He's calling upon God to intercede and to plead for him. It reminds us of of the advocacy about which John writes in his first epistle at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know, it's interesting that those who are innocent and yet accused of a crime wrongfully want the best lawyer, obviously, that they can have. And they want one who can plead for their innocence and make a case for their innocence because they are innocent. Ironically, in our case, we're guilty. We're guilty and we want someone to plead for us who can bring about relief from that guilt. In our case, who is it? Jesus Christ, our mediator. Guilty in what sense? Guilty because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guilty because without the blood of Christ and without the the advocacy of Jesus Christ, there's no way for us to be declared innocent. But because Jesus Christ was willing to be our advocate with the Father, because He was willing to come to this earth, live as a human being, die a horrifically painful and tragic death upon Calvary and shed His sinless blood and give up that equality with God as He came to this earth, because He was willing to suffer beyond our comprehension in so many ways, we have that advocate with the Father. And without Him, without Him, we would still be guilty. And David's plea here reminds us of that. As he pleads with the God of heaven to become his advocate, to plead his cause, and to redeem him. And then there's that plea in the latter part of 154, revive me according to your word. Time and again in this beautiful psalm, there has been an appeal for revival. Quicken me, as the King James says. Make me alive or revive me, but notice by what? According to your word. Those who would advocate revival, if you will, by a direct operation of the Holy Spirit need to read the 119th Psalm. They need to read it and realize how many times David attributes revival to the Word of God, the all-sufficient Word of God. He did so at a time before we had that Word in its complete and final form under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And yet, even under His covenant, it was sufficient as it appointed to the ultimate covenant that would come, sealed with the blood of Christ, as it pointed to the blood that would flow backward to cleanse those under the covenant under which David lived and forward to cleanse all those who will bring their lives into harmony with it for as long as time stands into harmony with his will, he understood the power of the will of God, the revealed will of God. 
and that he had to keep that law, verse 153, that he had to be redeemed and revived according to that law, verse 154. And then he brings into view the wicked in 155. As he says, salvation is far from the wicked. Why? Because they don't give mental agreement to the fact that God exists? Because they don't say they love God? Is that why salvation is far from them? No. Salvation is far from them, David says, for they do not seek your statutes. What's the difference between statutes here in this verse and law back up in 153? Nothing whatsoever. It's just a different terminology, a different expression for the same body of truth, the law of God. What is it that keeps the wicked from salvation? It is their failure to seek the law of God. What is it that keeps those who are characterized as wicked from salvation under the new covenant? Because they do not seek the law of God. The law of God today being the new covenant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, that word wicked is a word that we generally do not apply to those who are good moral people and yet those who have not obeyed the gospel of Christ or those who are sincerely misled in their religious practice. Generally, that's not a word that you would hear applied to those in that category. But let me ask you this. How much difference, tragically, will be the ultimate end of all the good moral people in this world who have not obeyed the gospel of Christ and those who are serial killers, those who've never even thought about God at all, those who may have taken the lives of many people before their own lives are lost? What will be the difference in the ultimate end? Oh, I recognize the Bible teaches there will be degrees of punishment based on statements like Luke 12, 48, which mentions the servant who knew his master's will will be beaten with many stripes, the one who did not know it beaten with few, but they will all be tragically and eternally lost. You see, there are only two kingdoms in this world, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. And while generally we do not like to associate a word like wicked with those who are not members of the body of Christ having obeyed the gospel, they are nonetheless among those who are the wicked. Now I can appreciate the good that good moral people do in our world and the contribution they make versus the absolutely criminal element that would take your life in a heartbeat, obviously we have a greater appreciation for those who are not running around killing people than we do for those who are running around killing people, obviously. But the point is, there are only two kingdoms, and we must be in the kingdom of Christ. You see, those who do not seek the statutes of the Lord, as David says, have salvation far from them. Oh yes, some may be nearer to the kingdom than others, but being near to the kingdom is not equivalent to being in the kingdom.
And therefore, it is so important that we not fall into the trap, if you will, Satan's trap, of excusing those in the world who are highly religious people, those who are very good moral people, and saying, well, maybe maybe they'll be okay where they are, versus those out here who are just atheistic or agnostic or, or openly rebellious against God. Certainly we appreciate those good moral people more than we do that other category, but we cannot, we cannot refrain from taking the gospel to both categories because both are still lost if they are not a part of the kingdom of God. And the faulty thinking that I believe has permeated the thinking of many even in the Lord's church today is a thinking that says perhaps the Lord will overlook the failure to obey all of his will. Perhaps those who have sincerely believed that baptism was not essential, perhaps God will take into account their sincerity, etc. I won't mention his name, but we had a brother in Christ, a very, very prominent and very capable brother who wrote a book, and many books, a very, very uh, intelligent man who wrote a book in which ultimately he concluded that perhaps, perhaps, God will not ultimately require from certain people the requirement of baptism for salvation. A brother who penned those words. So what I'm cautioning about is not a caution that is unnecessary and irrelevant. It's a caution that is based upon the reality of what has taken place among our own brethren and is still taking place among our own brethren. There's a church in San Antonio, Texas that no longer wears the name Church of Christ. And it's very well-known preacher and author who is renowned throughout the world for his authorship has denied the essentiality of the gospel plan of salvation. And so, we must not fall in to the trap that Satan has laid for us that would begin to excuse good moral people or highly religious but sincerely misled religious individuals and begin to think perhaps we don't need to try to reach them because surely they're going to be okay. Salvation is far from everyone. Let's put it that way. Leave out the word wicked. Salvation is far from everyone who does not seek the Lord's statutes. And that everyone includes members of my family or your family or anyone's family. And it breaks our hearts when that is the case. It is particularly difficult when it's a family member. That was pointed out to me this morning. But it cannot allow us to change what the Word of God teaches, nor our obligation to those good moral people 
who still must have the gospel of Christ if they're to have the hope of salvation. Oh, yes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. That's the next statement in this psalm. But as great as his tender mercies are, they will not, they will not span the gap between good moral people and complete obedience to the will of God. That word great regarding the mercies is a word that indicates many. In other words, it's a numerical expression. Many, in other words, are your tender mercies, O Lord. We have just sung tonight, count your blessings. Can you do that? I doubt it. Not really. We need to spend a lot of time trying. But it's difficult for us to fully reckon the mercies of God. That is, to reckon them by counting them or numbering them. We can't fully reckon them, but we can certainly recognize them and receive them with rejoicing, can't we? Great are your tender mercies, O Lord. And oh, how much time we should spend reflecting upon those tender mercies. And then again, the call to be revived. Revive me according to your judgments. Another expression for the word of God. And then he writes, many are my persecutors and my enemies. You know, when people start to gang up on us, it increases the pressure, doesn't it? It intensifies the pressure. You can handle opposition from one person better than you can two or three or four or a whole horde of people that are against you. David here says, many are my persecutors and my enemies. I don't just have one or two. I have many. So what? Yet I do not turn from your testimonies. Yet I do not turn from your testimonies. Now look at his attitude toward toward the treacherous, as the New King James renders it. Verse 158. I see the treacherous and am disgusted. The word indicates medically being, physically being sickened, nauseated, really made to feel sick by the treachery that surrounded him. And notice it's because they do not keep your word. That phrase, I see, is the same as the word consider in the next verse, and the same as the word consider in verse 153, the first verse here. I see, I consider, I am very much aware of the wickedness in the world around me. Our lesson this morning reminded us, really, of the times in which we find ourselves in terms of the treachery, the wickedness, the sin that characterizes our nation to a great extent. How should that make us feel? Not joyous by any stretch of the imagination. It really should make us sick. And I know that you've had things said to you or events occur in your life that physically bring about a change from the standpoint of just feeling sick to your stomach. 
uh, over them. Now, I mentioned the emotional reaction I felt when we got, I got the note from the viewer Good News Today who said, I felt I had to defend the gospel. That just hurts when someone uses false doctrine in a text and says to you, when he writes to you, I had to defend the gospel and what he's purporting in that, in that communication is false to its core, false teaching. And yet he says, I had to defend the gospel against a gospel preacher. That hurts a gospel preacher. <laughs> that hurts. That hurts any Christian, doesn't it? And so you can identify to some extent with what David is saying here. It really is sickening. It is sickening to see how so many do not keep his word. It sickens you from the standpoint of those who have no interest in even examining it or looking into it, but it's equally, if not more sickening, to see those who claim that they have looked into it and examined it and are telling you what you ought to be saying when, in fact, they've come away from it with a totally false conclusion and are spouting that false doctrine as far and wide as they can and leading astray precious souls in the process. That is sickening, and it should be. That's the point. It should be. It should hurt us. Does it destroy our joy in Christ? No. No. But as we've said before, we can never become desensitized to the sin that surrounds us. Remember Lot, Second Peter 2, 7 and 8, he vexed his righteous soul, the King James says, from day to day with their, those in Sodom there where he lived, with their unlawful deeds. Troubled him day in and day out. But in verse 159, he says, Consider how I love your precepts. Now that statement really hit home to me when I was looking at this psalm and studying for this lesson. Consider, and again, that's that same word as the phrase I see in the previous verse, and the verse 153 where he says, Consider my affliction. David David, who called upon God in verse 153 to consider his affliction, is confident, is confident in calling upon God now to look at him and to see, consider, and realize how I love your word. Think about that. Can each one of us go to God as David does here? And with confidence say, Father, consider, consider how much I love your word. Could we do that without any hesitation? And are we demonstrating that love by how much time we're spending with his word? So that if indeed we went to the Father and said, Consider how I love your precepts. In other words, it's, it's equivalent to saying, you know. He's saying to God, you know how I love your word. He's not asking for a greater love for it, though that would be appropriate. He's saying, please consider, please consider how I love 
your precepts. And that really hit home to me. You know, in John 21, we're reminded, as we are here, that love for God has to involve love for his precepts. And you can't claim to love God without loving his precepts, which is another term, again, for his word. But in John chapter 21, remember that exchange that Jesus had with, with Peter? And so when they had eaten breakfast, verse 15 of John 21, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. That expression from Peter is the same, really, that David is expressing here. You know that I love you. That's what David is saying here. Consider how I love your precepts. But that's equivalent to loving God. You can't love God without loving his word. And so when he says, you know that I love you, Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. In other words, if you love me, do my will. Do my will. And you know what happened next there, don't you, in John 21? Remember what, what Jesus said to him after that exchange? He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you were old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you did, do not wish and John says, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. He was saying to Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And as you do, one of these days you're going to die because of your allegiance to me. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And did Peter say, you've just told me that I'm going to die for you if I follow you. Am I going to do that? There was no hesitation. Oh, yes, Peter had denied him three times, but he affirmed his love for him three times. And he understood fully that what the Lord said to him was that he would glorify God by dying a martyr's death. And later in Peter's own writings, he referred to this very point in time and said, I'm getting ready to put off my tabernacle or my tent just as the Lord told me I would. He knew exactly what the Lord was saying to him. And he followed him nonetheless. Now that's love. That's love for God, which is manifested in its love, in, his, in one's love for his precepts. And in the latter part of this verse, verse 159, David says, Revive me, O Lord. There's that call for revival again. According to your loving kindness. Well, remember, 
the previous plea, revive me back at 154 according to your word. Verse 156, revive me according to your judgments. Now, in 159, revive me according to your loving kindness. But let me ask you this. Was it not the loving kindness of God that gave us this word? And is it not in this word that we learn of the loving kindness of God to its fullest extent? Of course. And so when he revives us according to his word and our obedience to it, he has revived us according to his loving kindness because it's God's love that gave us this word. And how about that word in terms of its inspiration? Verse 160, the concluding verse of this paragraph, reminds us the entirety of your word is truth. The American Standard says the sum, S-U-M, the sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will by no means pass away. Matthew 24 and verse 35. This whole world is coming to an end, but the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord will endure. And it is that word to which you must be obedient tonight if you have not been obedient in order to truly say with confidence that you love God. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And those commandments, John reminds us, are not grievous. They're not too much to ask of anyone. It's not too much to ask of you to believe with all of your heart, based upon the evidence that's overwhelming evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Not too much to ask of you to repent of your sins, Change your mind about where you are and determine to be elsewhere, that is, in Christ Jesus. It's not too much to ask you to sweeten your lips with the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And is it too much to ask for you to submit to a watery burial where the blood of Jesus awaits to cleanse you from every sin and to allow you to rise to walk in newness of life? Is that too much for God to ask in light of all that God, through His loving kindness, has done to revive us. And if you need to come home to your first love and be revived by a return to him through repentance and confession of sin that needs to be confessed in a public way, then we plead with you to come home in that way as we pray with you and for you to a God who waits for your return. As we stand to sing, will you come?